Hello, I'm Kristen McDonald, and welcome to our show. My guest today is a public affairs consultant and media strategist. Holly Pepe, Ph.D., is Managing Director of Pepe Communications in New York City. As head of her own PR consultancy firm, Dr. Pepe's career has also included international affairs, crisis management, fundraising, talent management, university teaching, and literary estate management. Dr. Pepe served for eight years as Director of External Affairs for Orbis, a nonprofit organization that provides eye surgery and training for doctors in developing countries. And some of her other projects included a developing an 18-country media campaign for the wonderful Operation Smile, a medical relief organization that provides reconstructive surgery for children in developing countries. Dr. Pepe is a fascinating and most courageous woman who reinvented herself after she survived a traumatic car accident. Prior to her PR career, she also taught as a professor of literature and has written extensively on poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. And she's a leading authority on Millay's body of work. And I'm really delighted to have her with us today. How are you, Holly? I'm fine, thank you. It is wonderful to have you with me, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview. My pleasure. So you've worked on so many fascinating projects. You know, I don't know where to begin. And uh, I laughed when you said, who would want to interview me? And I looked at your biography and said, my goodness, this woman is amazing. A PhD from Brown, and, and the list goes on. Well, I, 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 did, I sort of moved around in my life, um, not really looking for a career, but moving from one, one interest to the next. Um, always looking for something that was I was passionate about, and that uh, where I had some talent and and some ability to make a contribution, and um, and I, I pretty much uh, if, if you look at you know if I look back myself I, I I see that I landed in the world of nonprofit organizations, and I really feel that nonprofits um, you know they're 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 the groups who are helping the world. We need corporations, and we certainly need profit making um, companies. But uh, nonprofits really uh, fit my sensibility. Yes, so much it, of my work has been in that arena. It's so gratifying. Yes, it is, and especially in developing countries. Sure. And um, I was very fortunate to travel the world with Orbis, uh, the Flying Eye Hospital. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. When we first met, you you mentioned it that you went over there with um, was it Richard Branson's operation that. Uh, no, no, I forgive me, because later you worked with Branson, right, on the Virgin America? Right. right. Later I worked with actually Mrs. Branson, Eve Branson. Yes, Eve Branson. Going in Morocco, where she has her own nonprofit called the Eve Branson Foundation. Right, right. Um, but I actually met Mrs. Branson, Eve Branson, and the Branson family, and Richard Branson through Orbis International. Ah, uh, okay. It was a really fascinating concept, which was to create a mobile hospital uh, for the blind to teach eye doctors in developing countries the various skills that we in the West take for granted, oh. uh, and, and to bring them, you know, sort of the newest, the newest, latest, and greatest in eye surgery techniques. Isn't that fantastic? So they trained all these eye, all these ophthalmologists. Yes, and they trained them. And the reason that they had an aircraft, the idea was that they can't get, they couldn't get into the countries that they needed to go to. It would be very difficult to bring people into some of the remote areas unless they were they had an aircraft. Right. So uh, United Airlines way back in 1982, donated an aircraft, which at the time was a DC-8, an old plane. Now, mm-hmm. it's really, um, we don't see them anymore, um, except maybe for cargo. 
and uh, and then they transformed the inside of this jet into an eye surgery hospital that could actually, with generators, that could go into an airport, park, the generators would go down, and then the, it was a sort of working hospital for those three weeks that the doctors would, from the West would go out and stay in the country. So it was like and a mobile clinic. A mobile clinic. And the interesting part, I mean, when you walked into the aircraft, the first-class section was really the the theater where the doctors from the host countries would sit and they would watch the in-flight movie, but the in-flight movie was actually eye surgery being performed in the center of the plane where the operating room was located. And in the back of the plane was a recovery room. So it was was like a mini hospital, (laughs) exactly. Absolutely incredible. And did you, I imagine you saw all sorts of life-changing stories, you know, with people getting their vision back and their eyesight back? Yes, and and I was director of public affairs, which meant that I was looking for stories to talk so that we could publicize Orbis and then obviously generate donations, which is what one does in a nonprofit. Sure. And um, and I worked in India, China, Central America, South America, Eastern Europe. I mean, I really traveled and saw so many inspiring stories, many of which we were able to share with the world. You know, I mean, a, a man who had his sight restored who sees his wife for the first time, oh. a child who sees her mother for the first time, and I mean, they were all very moving, and obviously that, you know, this it, it is a life-changing experience. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And were a lot of these surgeries comparable to, let's say, laser surgery here in the States, or were they much more intricate with retinal surgeries? Or They, were, they, were, they really ran the gamut, mm-hmm. and in some cases it was just as simple as a, as a cataract surgery. Just yeah. Cataract surgery wasn't available in a particular area because right. the doctors weren't properly trained. Right. Or they... And by the way, I, I will say that doctors in other parts of the world were often very well trained, but they didn't know the newest techniques. And right. so that was something else we were able to do. Sure. Oh, um, absolutely incredible. And it was the same, I mean, the same the kind of life-changing experience happened with Operation Smile, another organization that I'm very yes, fond of. Yes, and tell I us did, about Operation Smile. Yeah, which I did consult with. I, I worked on an 18-country tour with them. And that's another organization that goes into countries and they screen patients to see who is eligible for surgery. And in that case, they, they, they repair cleft lip and cleft palate uh, oh. where it's possible. And that, of course, is also something that changes children's lives. Because in some countries, children that have those kinds of what they consider defects yes. are hidden uh, from others. Sometimes they stay in the house. Much of the time, you know, their, their self-esteem is very low. Oh, I can only and, imagine. And that really, and that and sometimes their parents, and our, their parents are often, often desperate and don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So that's another kind of life-changing event that's really miraculous to watch. Well, and, and I understand, and we've discussed this, you know, when I first met you, that you went through your own life-changing experience with a car accident, that, that you had to have surgery and whatnot, and you're a gorgeously, stunningly beautiful woman. I know that. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I did. I had a... I had a, a, a life-threatening car accident, not that they all aren't all life-threatening, um, that put me in recovery for about a year. And uh, it was it was traumatic, and at the same time, I, that was right after I finished. I mean, that's why I left Orbis, because of that accident. Oh, so um, it was right after Orbis that it happened. Right after Orbis, mm-hmm. and actually, I, I mean, I was with Orbis at the time. Mm-hmm. So I needed to leave Orbis because obviously I couldn't, didn't have the stamina to do what right. I was doing. Right, and you were in a, in a cab in New York City? I mean, Yes, I was in a taxi in New York City, New York City taxi. Oh, my God, that's was, stressful enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was thrown into the divider and, oh. uh, and the, 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 the tremendous damage. 
but luckily I had some wonderful surgeons. And I know if you look at, I mean, I think we have to look back and see the positive elements in everything. And yeah. certainly, as much as I loved Orbis and I loved that mission, it really catapulted me into a different space where I realized that I would, because I was in recovery, I didn't, I really wouldn't take a job. And so I just created my own, my own uh, small agency, sort of boutique agency, basically a consultancy, in which I, I just called upon, I had to really investigate, you know, to uh, do some research on myself and say, what are my talents, what are my skills, um, you know, what potential do I have to make a difference with the skills and talents that I have, and then it's almost, I just say this because I think it's important that people can, to, need to realize that you're not always in control of everything. No. I didn't really set out to set up a business, mm-hmm. but organically it grew and, and it people blossomed. were attracted to what I was bringing. And, and, and so I set up a, a very active business, which I'm still running. Yes, very um, successful. And I, I love what happy. you said the other day, which was astounded me, that you never had a plan. You know, which right. we're all taught, they bang us over the head in school and and uh, and post university to say you know you have to have a plan and, and at work, and yet you didn't set out with any real goals or plans. You just followed your your passion, your inner voice. I mean, in a way, I'd have to say that's true. Uh, I I didn't I didn't I never did have a plan. I started out in music, and I thought I would. I saw the hearing healing powers in music, and even as a young woman, I really wanted to. I wanted to sing. I wrote songs. I played in coffee houses, you know, back in the day. Wow, you're multi-talented. And, uh, and, I, and I felt that I wanted to change the world in some way. And it was interesting that years later, you know, I, I moved into writing. I felt that I love the liberal arts, for one thing. I, I think it's really important that students learn liberal arts, that they study, mm-hmm. so that if they can read and write and speak well, um, I think, you know, that's a really good basis for whatever they do. But in any case, I went from music into state and the language field. And and then I just sort of, and I moved poetry was always my passion. So I was always very strong in poetry. Yes, so and I, that's when you started writing. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. Uh, yes, and then I, when I discovered Edna St. Vincent Millay, that was a little later on. Mm-hmm. But um, even in college, I, I was in, I always, I love the creative writing world. And so I wrote poetry and short stories, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then from there, I just, parlayed that into something else, and that, that was really what ended up becoming my public relations career, was based on the fact that I really feel that, that you know, that I, that I could read and write well, I could speak well. Uh, I understood the concept of story, and public relations to me is all about story. Yes, Telling it is. someone's story, raising awareness about something that, and in my case with PR, because I've chosen the nonprofit world, I've been very fortunate to choose the clients that I think are telling a story that is worth hearing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that will help other people in some way, that will improve whatever it is, our dispositions, our lives. Yes, to have a positive mm-hmm. impact. Right, and have a positive impact. Yeah. And so um, my, my poetry career, which was interesting as a scholar, a poetry scholar, I have written you know, and, and published about Malay. I did the Penguin Classics edition, and I just recently did the Harper's uh, New Collective Poems. But I feel that that's, in a way, it's all really comes from the same place. Um, you know, public relations and poetry don't seem to match. Mm-hmm. But in a way, they're really all about story. Sure, absolutely. Yes, and, and, and really getting the message out there to people yes. so they can, you know, benefit from it themselves. Right, and poetry, of course, gives you insights 
and and that's the beauty of poetry. I'm yes, one of the many beauties of poetry, but it, it does offer insights into someone else's life that you often will identify with. Yes, an audience who yes. identify with. And I have to make a little joke here because, as you know, I have a screen reader, and yes. it pronounced your name as Pep instead of Peppy, and Malay as Millie. So well, just are. making that, that retraction that here. <laughs> so it's that Brit over there. It's that Brit. I have a British voice on my computer, and the regular listeners on my show know that. So my my mistake, and so it's Malay. Oh, we'll forgive, we'll forgive. Him. Forgive me, please. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, so so after the accident, you know, when you how, what advice do you have to people about reinventing themselves? You know, in any any life threatening situation like that. Well, I think that I think that you you have to sit back. I mean, there is a, a step back, I should say, and and think about what you want out of your life because it does give you a chance to reflect. Yes, it does. Um, and kind and of a I second think, chance too. Yes, right. It's a second chance, and as you as you put it so beautifully, second vision, your second vision. And in this my case, it was really identifying what my talents were, what my passion was, what my sensibility was, and I believe we're here to serve. Uh, I don't say that in a particularly religious way. Mm-hmm. I just mean that I think that one of our purposes, you know, is to inspire others. Yes. And to enable them to see their potential. Mm-hmm. And well, that's so, beautiful. And I knew, pardon? Beautiful. Yeah. Well, and but I, I thought that I could do that. I thought that's probably something that I that I was able to do. Um, and from that, oh, first I, I actually worked with the UN. I did some work with the UN as a consultant, and it was with the special representative for the. Office of Children and Armed Conflict. Mm-hmm. These are child soldiers and children who are, I mean, just who are abused in the worst way oh, my in, goodness. in war. You know, we're seeing, of course, horrible, horrible examples of that now in Syria. Um, oh, yes, my God. But, um, but I worked in that office, and, and then and I was able to see, I mean, to me that was a, an important place to be. I went and stayed at the U.N., and then I ended up working with a, with a group that... Um, Staged a, a world peace summit of religious and I spiritual leaders. I saw that in your biography. is so impressive with all the top religious leaders from around the world. And it was a fascinating, uh, really a fascinating event because the religious leaders came from all walks. You know, we had mm-hmm. the Grand Mufti of Syria. We had all the Ethiopian high priests, mm-hmm. all dressed in their in their um, religious garb, and we brought them all together. And the idea was that if these people could go could get together and create some message of peace and of, you know, of, of how we should live and be kind to each other, et cetera, et cetera. But these people all had a following. They would go back to their respective countries and spread that word. Sure, sure. It was an idealistic idea. Yeah. And whether or not that actually happened, I, I certainly couldn't attest to it. But I think that it was an important gathering. Um, I can just imagine the energy in that room at the Waldorf Astoria with all of them in, in one place. Well, and that was, Kristen, the other exciting thing is part of it was in the Waldorf Astoria. The rest of the, some of the meetings were held in the General Assembly. Oh. It was the first time in the U.N.'s history that another, a group other than the ambassadors had been in the General Assembly. Oh, actually my held a meeting goodness. Like that. Oh. So it was a historic, it was a very, a very marvelous, marvelous event. Yes, yes. Um, and you so, also worked with Yoko Ono. I saw that. Yes, you, you I were did. Instrumental in getting Ono a grant and, 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 mm-hmm, and a Lennon Ono grant for Peace Award, which was also at the United Nations. Um, I helped to put on a, a, a big event for her, in which she and I have to say she is very idealistic herself. Mm-hmm. And you know, and she says, um, "I give peace a chance." That really is her motto. I mean, that really she's been, she's always lived by that. Yes. And um, and she wanted to bring Israeli and 
Palestinian artists together. And in that way, somehow, you know, spread goodwill between those two groups and among those groups. So that was quite an interesting project. Fascinating. Um, Does any one of them stand out in your mind as one of your favorites? or As a project? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think one of the most challenging was working with Tony Kushner on Homebody Kabul, which is a play that was set in Taliban-dominated Afghanistan. And it was a, so just a marvelous play. Um, but it was about to open in December 2001. Uh-huh. So after September 2001, the question really was, was it safe to actually stage that play? Since we, you know, of it course. was a very controversial play when a yes. white woman from, um, from the U.K. Mm-hmm. was murdered by a, ta- by a Taliban, by the Taliban. Oh, my God. So that was a fascinating, and Tony Fisher is not only a marvelous play- playwright, but a marvelous person. So it was a real pleasure and honor to work with him. Yes, I can imagine. That was probably one of my favorites. Um, and and I have you know now I work with talent. I have two two clients in particular. That I know the the young pilot who flew solo around the first one to fly solo around the world. Yes, that's Barrington Irving. He flew solo around the world in two thousand seven. The youngest person and first black pilot to do so. Incredible, and he has some sort of a nonprofit now himself or something, right? Or yes, he has a nonprofit called Experience Aviation. Mm-hmm. Experience Aviation, and Experience Aviation is based in Miami. Yes. And the idea is to teach young people these STEM-related careers, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math-related careers, um, teach them about the careers and also teach them skills that will enable them to sort of move forward and want to go into those arenas. That's beautiful. That really is the, those, that's the wave of the future. Yes, yes, um, it is. That's where the jobs are. Exactly. Yeah. The other man I represent uh, is... A Quite magician. From Barrington. He's a magician. Uh-huh. His name is Steve Cohen, the millionaire's magician. And he uh, does a show every week in the Waldorf Towers called Chamber Magic. And he's also a very skilled and, um, again, a very marvelous young man who is, is an entrepreneur in his own right, as mm-hmm. is Barrington. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, really, it's really a pleasure for me to work with these young people who are looking ahead. They make their own way. They succeed because of their own perseverance and their talent. And, you know, I think that's, I have to say that one of the, one of the um, sort of pieces of advice when adults are wondering what they can do, I, I, I just think mentorship is so critically important. It's critical, really, isn't it? Yes, and I think, you know, both these young men were mentored in, in various ways, mm-hmm. and then they went on off on their own, and I think this is one of our duties is I mentor several people, young people, in public relations, and I think really it's responsibility, you know, to plan what we know. Well, I've been very fortunate to have a wonderful mentor, and uh, it's Tom Sullivan, you know, the motivational speaker, yes. actor, and we became friends, and and I can't believe the, the positive changes that have come from it, you know, just what I've learned from him, you know. He, it's, it's really incredible when someone takes the time and they want nothing in return, and and they just do it because it, it really makes them feel better, you know, to yes, offer their exactly. gifts. Yes. I mean, it really, giving back is giving to yourself as well. It I is. It really is. So, yeah, that, that's really, I think that's marvelous. Um, and being as busy as you are, I think it's incredible that you do that. You know, your your career has been so diverse, and it's it's, it's wonderful. Well, and you asked me what my favorite, you know, some what sort of, I think, probably one of my favorite pastimes is, is, um, is, write, is writing poetry and also reading poetry. Yes. And I think that, you know, my work with Malay has been very rewarding because I've also, 
I'm aware of, of another world out there. Sometimes we think that, you know, that we're alone in the world. But in the world of literature and poetry, these are, you know, the writers and the poets are speaking from personal experience. And they're giving us a gift, which is to say, you're not alone in the world. This is how I feel. And, and then you identify with them and you feel that way, too. Of course. Writers write from what they know. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, you know, Malay had a fascinating life. She was one of the first, really, I say, quote-unquote, feminist poets. Mm-hmm. But she was one of three girls, and she went her own way. She was always very headstrong and quite a brilliant poet who was, you know, who was very successful for 40 years. She and Robert Frost were the best-selling poets in America. Yes. But she really faced the sexism of the modernist poets, as mm-hmm. it found in T.S. Eliot. And the others who were, were, you know, putting women poets down. And I don't think we even know what that feels like anymore. No, and I can't even imagine in that era, you know, how different it was. Exactly. And so I think that's also, you know, it's a, it's a good lesson for young, young people and also certainly young writers, but everyone to realize that, you know, if someone says no to you, it makes you want to move forward which is what she did. Even she more. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're going to have to close in a minute because it goes so fast. Uh, we've had so much to talk about here, but I wanted to ask you as a role model for women yourself, you know, and having worked with Malay and, and on her works, her, her, you know, her wonderful poetry for so long, what would you suggest to women? You know, one thing if you could leave them with young women coming up the ladder. Well, I think probably, I think probably my, my, my best piece of advice is to believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. And it may sound like a cliche, but it's true that that's what we need to do. Yeah, that's and everything. Stop, it's self-esteem. Yeah, and stop being so hard on yourself. <laughs> I think sometimes we tend to be more critical of ourselves than the world could even be critical. And, well, I, and I think it's important to just stop, you know, again, step back and say, look, I, this is what I can do. Make a list of all, the, of all your talents and all your strengths. And read it every day. Yeah. Yes, that's great advice. And a friend of mine, you know, she's a speaker herself, and she always says, you know, stop waiting for it to be perfect, you know. Right. Sometimes right. We, we ask too much of ourselves, and, and it may be just good enough, you know. That's right. Believe and in that yourself. will lead to paralysis as well. I think, you know, when, when you're self-critical, you, you stop moving. Yes, yes, you get stuck. And yeah. it's important to keep moving. Holly, can you send people to... Uh, you know, a, a website or something so they can get your, your books or your poetry or? Well, I think if you want, you can certainly uh, Google me, mm-hmm. uh, Holly Pepe. So they would go to Amazon or? And go to Amazon, you could certainly, or just go on Google and you'll see. But I, the books that I recommend if you're interested in at the St. Vincent Malay, certainly in poetry, is they just go to Amazon and look for the um, Malay, M-I-L-L-A-Y. Um, uh, actually, I, first I want to send you to malay.org, okay. M-I-L-L-A-Y.org. That is the website for Steepletop. This is the home where Malay lived in Auslitz, New York, Great. where she wrote. Great. And it's a wonderful visit if you're up in the Berkshires, and there also is a wonderful bookshop up there. If you go to malay.org and send a note through, and if there's a book that you want, um, that will be sent out to you. Terrific. Great. So, well, thank you ever so much for taking the time to do this interview and share all of your wonderful insights. You're such an inspiration. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Kristen, for having me. Yes, thank you, and have a blessed day. And for those of you listening, you've been listening to Second Vision with Kristen McDonald, my guest, Dr. Holly Pepe, of Pepe Communications in New York, and I hope you follow up and look up some of her, her writings on poetry. 
And if you'd like to live life with your three best attitudes, please visit my website, secondvision.net, and you can purchase my Second Vision interactive journal there. Thanks to Richard Burton, my wonderful engineer, for helping to get this show on the air and on the road every single week. I'm Krista McDonald. Have a blessed day.